Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50% to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. You're listening to Scaffold, a podcast featuring interviews with architects, artists, and designers. I'm your host, Matthew Blunderfield. In this episode, I speak with Shadjay Bhushan, co-founder of Zaha Hadid Architects Computational Design Group. Shadjay is also a studio master at the Architectural Association's Design Research Lab in London, and is currently a PhD candidate at the ETH's Block Research Group in Zurich, where he is researching curved crease structures and fabrication-aware geometry. I met with Shadjay at ZHA's main office on Bowling Green Lane, in a disheveled Victorian complex of buildings that seemed happily at odds with the slick and seamless architecture the office is known for creating. We began our conversation in the entrance foyer, where our movements were tracked by sensors as a part of a new experiment the office is undertaking to assess relationships between patterns of use and changes in furniture arrangement. In the interview, we talk about what parametricism is, and how it is being framed by ZHA is something like a design philosophy, as relevant to the production of luxury housing as it is to the creation of furniture and even new forms of collective living. We also talk about transitions within the practice from Zaha's early conceptual painting to computationally driven form finding, and more recently to the collection and analysis of building information to further inform the design process. On a side note, I've got to warn you that due to a mic malfunction, my questions to Shadjay aren't always crystal clear. So if you can, try and save this episode for when you're in a quiet place. Also, FYI, the podcast will be on hiatus for the next month while I research, collect, and edit more interviews. To keep in the loop, follow the show's Instagram and Twitter accounts for updates. And now, here's the interview. I hope you enjoy it. that there is a certain desire yeah. uh, generated through certain images, yeah. uh, certain fantastical paintings created by Hadid, yeah. um, that there was a lack of tools for it to allow an architecture to uh, be generated out of. Yeah. And so over time, people with those tools gravitated to the practice and allowed these buildings to come into being. Yeah. And as I understand it, you're one of those people who make those tools. Yeah. Is that right? Yeah. Um, I mean, the group that I co-founded with Patrick um, in 2007, and then now um, there are 10, let's say, permanent employees. Uh, so the mandate is, is uh, really in, in that sense to, to marry, like, let's say, the expression with the tooling 
and and the tooling with the expression like so to 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 uh, yeah to in that sense like even though Zaha kind of originally did a lot of painting uh, by hand uh, her paintings are very rule based in the sense it's like a set of operations like it's not uh, painting in the kind of uh, idle mind sense painting uh, painting where it's active kind of uh, the brain is active in organizing the the operations, so it is very operation based. Like because Zaha was also had a uh, mathematical um, pre-education before architecture, and so uh, in that sense, it was very, uh, in many ways, already a precursor for digital, like which requires that lots of things be based on rules. Mm -hmm. Uh, so in that sense, yeah, we there's a it was an easier fit, um, let's say, uh, to to try and uh, pursue uh, our like my own interest and uh, the group's interest in seeing what can be the expressive aspects of computation, um, not only like computation as automation and computation as like just solving problems. But like also, what could be the the new aesthetic of this rule-based way of generating shapes, mm. uh, which in in many ways Zaha's paintings were already that. It's just she was manually implementing those rules, and now we have we can see ex see that exponentially multiply uh, with the power of the the computer. Let's say. Yeah. I wonder if we could talk a bit about how the practice became. Uh, a computational outfit because um, it seems like these early images these early paintings which were incredibly compelling and like nothing anyone had ever seen yeah of warping pers perspectives yeah uh, skewing lines yeah um, that seemed to be the almost like the kind of bait yeah <laughs> or the provocation yeah uh, a kind of challenge like um, asking a question, can this be a building? Yeah. And so, in your case, you've been at the practice now for almost a decade, is that yeah. right? Yeah, 11 years now, yeah. Mm -hmm. I mean, did you fall for the image, or like, how did you become a part of the practice in the first place? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I used to work for, I mean, I, I had very little, I studied architecture in India, and so I had very little, insight into the philosophy or, or um, the underlying uh, theoretical basis for the practice, let's say. And so I knew of Zaha and her paintings, but like never about like what, what was her background, what was her... Uh, and, and a lot of my colleagues, were, when I did my masters at the AA, like they would en masse join Zaha, and like whereas I decided to join Populous at that time. And then I met Patrick um, in a party, <laughs> and they were starting a computational, they were looking for someone to start a computational group, and like, uh, I just, to this date, I'm really grateful <laughs> to Patrick and Zaha that like they allowed me, like a really untested person, like I don't even have a architectural, I mean, a computational background. <laughs> like I have a kind of social science, um, uh, philosophical background like and then um, I became really interested in computers just um, d d through my masters here at the AA 
Um, Maybe we and, can talk yeah. a little more about your academic background then. Yeah. So I know that you studied uh, the DRL at mm -hmm. the AA, and so the DRL is a design research lab at yeah. the Architectural Association, <coughs> yeah. which um, has a kind of reputation for putting out work that um, is computationally based yeah. and um, visually avant-garde. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, when you say your background's also in social sciences, are you referring to your MPhil? Uh, no, I did my bachelor's degree in India, and like, uh, so it was more theory based and like kind of. Le they were I hardly ever ever had used a computer to design anything, um, so it was in that sense more traditional, like uh, modernist school of thought. <laughs> uh, you know, the plan and uh, and and was uh, critical, and but also a lot of. Um, my schooling was like based on theory and, and like you know theoretical ways to approach a project as opposed to like actually working on the plans or in the sections and, and working on solids like we didn't have much of that it was more on uh, history of India and like its position in modern world and you know critiquing of Corbusier and Chandigarh and like you know that kind of mm, um, let's say intellectual practice and less on the actual formal practice mm. uh, which that's why I found Za when Patrick offered the opportunity to start uh, the group uh, it, it was like a kind of it was a no-brainer for me like <laughs> to, to, to really because I was always interested in computers and but never had the opportunity um, to apply it in architecture and and then here was the chance to do both like Kind of, mm. yeah. And I know that, so you studied at the Indra Pasta Open University in Delhi, mm -hmm. and your dad is also an architect yeah. in India. Yeah. Um, your brother is an architect too. Yeah, he works in our group now. Okay. Yeah. yeah. So he's a colleague of yours. Yeah. Um, and when you're describing your undergraduate degree, it sounds like it's, it was very traditional, capital A architecture. Yeah. And um, so this. There's a lot of, even now, um, a lot of fervor and excitement around how computation is changing design disciplines and architecture in particular. Yeah. Um, and I, even when I hear people talk, even Patrick, for example, I get excited too. I feel like it's infectious. Yeah. And it feels like um, those involved in this corner of the discipline yeah. are in the process of making history. Yeah. At least that's how it's being conveyed. Yeah. And at the same time, so I feel like parametricism, if, if we can call it that, mm -hmm. uh, is not very well understood yeah. within the architectural community yeah. or just popularly as well. And so I wonder if we could just try and explain it <laughs> to the general <laughs> audience. What is parametric architecture? What is uh, parametric design? Yeah. Um, I mean, at, at the heart of it, like, any, you know, when people talk about computational design, uh, parametric design, uh, there's at least, like, several levels, let's say, and, and one level is the basic presence of the computer in somewhere in the design process. Like, so it could be that, you know, um, and usually it is, like, you artists or a group of designers think of think up of a design in in whatever way they're trained to think of of designs and then uh, the computer is used only to digitize it in some sense so it's an instrument of digitization 
um, and but so and and then the next level up would be like if you are actually using the computer and and the capabilities its its capacities for rule based um, instruction uh, and see how simple rules when multiplied and aggregated can generate shape um, and can then begin to address various complex constraints like structural requirements or acoustic requirements or most physical requirements, let's say things that can be measured more easily and they're like natural laws, uh, they're more amenable. Um, so in that sense, like, so that's the second level where like, you know, the, the computer's uh, capacities are leveraged to actually design shapes that would in, in one way or the other not been possible to, to create uh, uh, because you require that diligence of the computer to iteratively uh, apply those rules. Um, and those can be like made up rules, like synthetic ones, like or, uh, or based on natural phenomena. Um, and most engineers would probably prefer the, the natural phenomena aspects, but like you could also think of like rules which like you make up, like fract fractals and stuff like might, there might exist some natural equivalence, but like you can also always make up like new rules. Um, so that's, that's one, like that's perhaps the most pleasurable aspects to, to most young designers about the computer. So it becomes a kind of mode of discovery, like just by, uh, typing in a few local rules, like and globally something else comes out, which was unexpected, and so it, so it, there is that delightful aspect too, and discovery, and so um, and and I think like further further on, like you could also think of a philosophy of architecture based on this kind of tooling, um, which uh, which then tries to position these processes in relation to the, um, um, let's say, the, the deliverables of design, like, and what should architecture do? Mm -hmm. um, and, and so in that sense, parametricism is, is definitely more architectural theory uh, as opposed to descriptive of a process, mm -hmm. if that makes sense. So computational design describes process, algorithmic design describes the process and the tooling uh, parametricism from my understanding and working with Patrick, it, it tries to be a theory of architecture. It's a theory that tries to be as intimate with the tooling uh, uh, to, 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 gen, uh, to propose uh, a framework for creating architecture. So, so in that sense, parametricism is, is in a way should be discussed in relation to other theories of architecture, not as, not as a sci scientific description. Yeah, it's a sci It's not like description of a process. Like algorithmic design is a description of a process. Like, uh, whereas, yeah, I, th I think parametricism tries to build a theory of architecture based on. A philosophy that can come from understanding the way the computer works, and 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 then some of it is also mathematical. And yeah, I was just reading through parts of Schumacher's manifesto. Mm -hmm. uh, I'll just I just want to read out a few lines because I feel like it helps to frame yeah. the discussion a bit. Yeah. And so the premise 
at least from what I gathered, um, is a mass shift towards heterogeneity in society. Yeah. Um, centering itself around, and parametricism centers itself around the slogan, organizing and articulating the increased complexity mm-hmm. um, of post-Fordist society. Yep. Uh, the manifesto essentially focuses on the possibility of continuous and conspicuous differentiation mm-hmm. um, throughout all rule, realms of design. Yeah. Um, dividing itself into sections such as parametric figuration, mm-hmm. uh, parametric responsiveness, yeah. sw- uh, parametric urbanism. Yeah. So it almost sounds like a way of seeing or understanding the world. Yeah. Um, it's, a, it's a design epistemology. Yeah. Can we th- call it that? Yeah, yeah. And so this is, this is incredibly captivating language. Yeah. <laughs> and um, it kind of, it kind of sets the stage for a new way of thinking about um, the the world and how we make it. Yeah. Then on the other side of that, to me, uh, is the kind of practical applications yeah. of parametric design. Yeah. Um, which have to do with uh, analysis yeah. and efficiency yeah. and automation. Yeah. And it seems like ZHA, as it's known now, mm-hmm. is doing both of those things. Yeah. Um, and I guess before we get into like what specifically it's doing, mm-hmm. I, I want to talk a little bit more about how um, the practice itself has become an instrument for uh, computational design. Yeah. Because it seems like at the outset it was doing something different. Yeah. That was concerned first and foremost with aesthetics. Yeah. And with specific art historical movements. Mm-hmm. And that computation was a means to an end. But then over time something changed and computation became the end in and of itself. Is that a correct? Um, um, I, I, I think, yeah, the computation is not. Uh, yeah, internally, I don't think we see computation as an end of itself, uh, end on it, on itself. Uh, we definitely think it's also not just a means, like in a way that like we could somehow do it without a computer. Like, uh, like so there is like a synergy that if once, as I said, like these levels of parametric design, like ultimately, if your um, theory is also based on. Uh, uh, intimate understanding of the, the 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 processes involved in digital design or computational design, or, and now increasingly computational manufacture. Mm-hmm. So, CAD computer design, CAM computer manufacturing. Mm-hmm. Uh, so these are all already leveraging the computer's powers for automation in some sense. But as I mentioned, you could also leverage the powers to think of uh, generating shapes of incredible complexity which uh, which almost begins to mimic things in nature which have similar complexity um, by just repeating the same uh, simple set of building blocks you know a building set of operations um, it generates complexity and that's what I think Patrick tries to mean by when you say that society is incredibly complex now, like people are highly differentiated. Uh, it's not like, um, you know, most people have a nine to five job and like, you know, most people have one employer or it's like it's highly 
very varied like society is very varied like our communication systems are extremely complex and there's lots of information uh, so Patrick tries to say that computational means of design uh, could uh, be leveraged to come up with a equally complex architecture to support this equal, this extraordinarily complex life of the 21st century. Uh, so, to, so in that sense, computers and computational design com and manufacturing, etc., become the vehicle by which we can marry uh, complex societies with complex architecture. talk I think in the writing of yours that I've read about um, tacit knowledge yeah and somehow being able to translate that into um, uh, a computational process yeah and so could you just expand on that a little bit and how that informs your, your the research you're doing now yeah um, so I mean we're so like like broadly we tend to operate uh, as a group um, uh, on a kind of what might be called like creation of geometry that is aware of its uh, structural performance and also how it can be made so the the shapes are not arbitrary so how do you create shapes which are uh, which and by shapes we we usually mean curved shapes. Um, how do you create curved shapes, which uh, there there is a natural way to physically make them. So usually they represent some way of uh, folding or stretching fabric or uh, some kind of physical process is abstracted. Um, to to create those shapes, so that like when it comes to physically making them, uh, we can either leverage those kind of physics, like so with this curved origami. If you design a shape that can be materially realized by folding paper or folding metal, uh, so that's what we mean by f shapes that are aware of how it's going to be made. So we're saying fabrication-aware shapes. And sometimes we're also interested in like um, structure-aware shapes, meaning shell structures and uh, masonry domes and things. So, so those, let's say a dome is a dome which is aware at least on how it's going to transfer its forces uh, down to ground. Um, so we want to capture that idea and use the uh, computer to explore more of that space. Uh, so what are other dome-like shapes that might be possible with this principle, yeah. It sounds really familiar the way you're describing it. Mm -hmm. And I think probably this idea of self-aware structure, a mm -hmm. self-aware form, mm -hmm. uh, resonates with earlier architectural movements as well. Yeah, absolutely. Like thinking of high tech uh -huh. uh, in the UK of brutalism. This idea of truth to, and then fill in the blank, be it material, structure, yeah. um, program 
there is, there is an obsession, I think, um, within design to have um, to have the design somehow be honest. Yeah. Um, and so when you talk about self-aware forms, yeah, um, computation becomes a tool for realizing the potential of that question. Uh, yeah, and 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 but also high, highlighting and heightening. Yeah, or using that awareness to, uh, to to express that like even more like to amplify it let's say like so not only I mean we are less interested so much as, so to speak in the truthfulness like but we're interested really on uh, how we can visually manifest these processes like so let's say we know how uh, uh, force flows through a uh, curve um, shape and we want to make patterns that highlight that or like for example we know uh, how it was going to be made like let's say you're chipping away on stone so we want to express that uh, process as texture or as features um, so certain cuts are only possible when they're made by a certain kind of fabrication process so we kind of highlight uh, that cut let's say like uh, whether it is needed structurally or not like uh, if it is naturally resultant from the process um, then we try to stylistically even amplify it like so that so in that sense it's not so much like truthful that it came truthfully out of it but like uh, it, it has a natural resonance with with the process let's say it's not it's not extraneous to the process yeah mm. so if, if that's what you mean by truthfulness yeah mm. yeah yeah and then at the same time um, there is something incredibly superfluous in mm -hmm. a way mm -hmm. about um, certain design exercises that the office is engaging with. Mm -hmm. And not, I don't say that as a kind of criticism mm -hmm. because um, excess and um, superfluity mm -hmm. is sometimes necessary when the design approaches iterative. Yeah. There's a lot of waste and disposal as you kind of hone in on yeah. a, the right option or something. Yeah. And so um, why don't we talk about novelty mm -hmm. and what um, what these new forms that you are generating yeah. and experimenting with signify to a general audience yeah. um, and how they become kind of commodities yeah. which promote a way of practicing um, but at the same time as of yet have very little practical application. Mm. Um, yeah, I mean that, so it's, it's an interesting way to think of value. <laughs> Uh, it's like what is the value proposition of these methods and techniques and um, and and, and wh why should society care kind of right oh. like yeah <laughs> I feel like I should or we, we should try and set the stage a little more mm -hmm. and when I talk about iterative studies or superfluous objects mm -hmm. what I'm thinking of are um, design projects at the scale of uh, conceptual furniture, yeah. uh, pavilions, yeah. and so forth. Yeah. So temporary structures yeah. or conceptual forms, yeah. which allude to use, mm -hmm. but in fact are, are highly impractical. Yeah. 
Yeah, I mean those. Uh, yeah, we 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 tend to do a lot of those uh, things which are like free from the burden of architecture. Let's say because, uh, and especially in the early phases of discovering uh, capacities of the computer uh, in design and, and and also in manufacture and. Uh, we have to, we, I mean, I would call it a period of suspension of disbelief that like we have to do, uh, engage in technology for the sake of technology, like to, to really see what, uh, figure out like what is it's capable, capable and how we can interface with it and so on and so forth. Like, so, so we, in that period, like we do do a lot of pavilions and like furniture and like, um, because it's easy. Uh, it's easier in in some of the. It allows us to focus on like bracketed experimentation. So we're not consider we're not considering all the uh, program aspects, or we're not considering like in you know, all the economical viability aspects, etc. Like so, it allows us to develop a language, um, a geometric language, um, uh, more in a focused way, but. Uh, and and that's not only us as a practice, which I think that the discipline itself has ha had to go through that kind of period of suspended disbelief. That uh, which which is now beginning to bear fruit. I think like because you can see in the last ten years like enormous progress in in many practices having control over digital processes of both design and manufacturing. So uh, which then now lends us. To, to the next stage where we can say we know know the physical side pretty well. Um, so what else can we add to this? Uh, where can we apply it? What's the value proposition in some sense? That um, and so more engineering focused research groups might tend to think of like okay now we can also t begin to address environmental sustainability, energy consumption, material consumption, and, and all of these things. Uh, but we as architects and as a firm we are beginning to consider like the social aspects like you know to to say can we study the social impact of these or the social value of these kind of shapes and these kind of processes and these kind of expressions uh what might be the why might people uh, how we might study its social impact equally computationally so then then we can merge the social with the physical the the storytelling with the science um, and the the consumption with the production, etc. Like so, um, so that's that's where we believe the, the the entire discipline is at. That like there is rapidly maturing technologies and the science aspects are, and the physical side is uh, maturing rapidly and allows us as architects to perhaps go back to focusing on the more intimate task of a designer and an architect to understand how people actually use spaces mm -hmm. or what, what they care about space and um, you know. I feel like for me that's the most difficult transition to understand yeah. or application <laughs> yeah. to understand and so I watched you gave a lecture at the AA in January of this year yeah. called uh, Collaborative Cumulative, yeah. Realizing Architecture's Disruptive Potential, yeah. which sounds, like the title even sounds like a very, it sounds like it wants to be part of a contemporary discussion. Yeah. I mean, just the word disruption alone yeah. uh, probably has its roots in Silicon Valley and startup scenes and yeah. um, 
maybe a, a specific realm of innovation that this practice wants to be part of. Yeah. Um, but when you start talking about the social implications of parametricism, mm -hmm. I feel like I get lost. And yeah. I wonder if we could try and unpack that a bit. Yeah. Um, yeah, for it, as, um, as I mentioned at the early uh, stages, that the, 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 the ultimate ambition, at least for in terms of how Patrick sets out his uh, um, theory or book or manifesto, let's say, is, is to mirror society's complex orderings in the spatial ordering of, of, the, of architecture, of our buildings and the built environment, right? Like to, to try and see these two as synergetic and, and informing one another. Um, so, in so in that sense, we could study, um, and we we can participate in studies of computational um, computationally studying social uh, systems. Let, let's say how, for example, how people consume uh, the spaces, like uh, how they where they sit, where they. How they move about, how they navigate in a space, and therefore be able to tailor the architecture to its nuanced use, not just like big block use, like oh, this is a meeting room, and here's 30 square meters of meeting room. But we now have the capacity to see, like within a meeting room, it can be further differentiated, like oh, this is spaces for three, four people, and this is for isolated study or like you know people might break off like and so can we now design the space knowing that this is how it's going to be used like in more nuance I mean not to say that people didn't know how to use it uh, how it was used before but like now we can know it in greater detail uh, the same way we can know in greater detail how much energy things consume we know in greater detail how air flows through this room, etc. Like we can also know how people flow through it. And, and, and so that's where uh, if we study people in a computational way and it, their use and their where they see what they see and what they like <laughs> uh, in a computational way, not just intuitively guesswork, um, then we can then marry a production system to and, and a design system to that requirement. So when requirements get no, nuanced, that's where we think that the digital design manufacturing uh, workflows and languages have the most uh, value when we can address these nuanced requirements, which prior mass production systems couldn't possibly do. Because um, if you make a box, you make a box, like you can't like further uh, articulate any corners in it, like, you know, so that, um, yeah. Um, so are you teaching right now at the AA? Yeah. And is it still um, the seminar called Constructed Histories? Uh, yeah, that's one of the seminars. I, I also te uh, we teach, I teach a studio with my wife, um, and we are focusing on um, housing. Okay. Um, and again, marrying, not like looking at housing in, as a kind of, as though there's a, a crisis to be solved, but like as more as the opportunity to see 
contemporary living and like how we might revisit housing from ground up like by asking the more principal questions of like what can architecture contribute to uh, house a dynamic social community uh, what what so and fundamentally question uh, what are the minimum set of rules and regulations needed <laughs> like and so in a way question also planning norms so we want to kind of stay away from <laughs> uh, the kind of big block uh, discussions, let's say, in that there is a crisis or not crisis, and uh, that there's a developer housing, and then there should be socialist housing, or the socialist housing is failing, or like we don't we don't want to look at any of those things, but we want to see housing as a opportunity uh, to uh, to leverage technologies of data. Uh, social network analysis um, and kind of combine it with like digital means of designing and rule-based design and rule rule-based manufacturing mm -hmm. so uh, yeah a really cynical part of me is imagining this as a kind of damage control because <laughs> I know that uh, certain ideas that have come from individuals in the practice around housing have been controversial in the past <laughs> yeah. how much how much input or feedback do you have from uh, your colleagues around the kind of stuff that you teach? Um, I mean, Patrick started the course, so uh, he's a co-founder at the, the DRL, and um, and he still has a studio, and so there is um, constant engagement with the topic. Uh, so in that sense, it's not really <laughs> at all damage control. It's more like further understanding um, uh, the opportunities, you know, like to, to see housing not as like some crisis that needs to be solved, but like as opportunities to like actually design uh, houses that people want to live in and like w why not live w uh, with friends and like why not, why only see it as like square meters and as a uh, number, number of dwellings per hectare, like which is regardless whether it's like capitalist or socialist like all of those discussions regardless like housing is kind of considered in these big block numbers and like never as individuals like whereas you and i like obviously will have a emotional response to the idea of housing and which is never captured uh in in any uh, architectural procedure so what we want is to now say that like we have enough control over the physical side like so now let's try and address like some of these aspects of community and uh, and and so yeah it is looking for opportunities to apply um, yeah uh, further understand the social side of architecture in a computational way and uh, yeah so there is like lots of uh, back and forth and discussions with Patrick and, and others in the in the office and um, yeah so there's no um, yeah it's not damage control in that sense like uh, I mean Patrick himself would readily admit that like he makes these statements to to actually receive pushback but consider pushback not like knee-jerk reactions that like um, most of the the profession might have like it's like oh this is too 
provocative or too like kind of off off the charts like <laughs> uh, but you know but if you just said have a rational think about it and like kind of push back after some consideration like and why why is it so offensive mm -hmm. uh then like you know then it, it, it it's a provocation for debate obviously yeah just further to the point about um applying parametric design thinking mm -hmm. towards uh, social problems or social challenges yeah um or challenges of use mm -hmm. and program. Yeah. Uh, looking at the projects in the office or in your studio mm -hmm. that um, are aiming to do that, yeah. there's still a very strong aesthetic yeah. bent to them. Yeah. They're still using, um, I don't know, catenary yeah. um, formulas yeah. or um, descriptive geometry. Yeah. Um, these kind of formal yeah. visual tools yeah. um, in a way that seems less relevant to the problems they're trying to solve. Yeah. Insofar as like, just on a really basic level, these are expensive buildings yeah. to make. Yeah. And so how, that must be a struggle trying to pull yourself away from the formal and address social questions. Um, yeah, I mean, we do, we do see that that that's a a priori like to say like yeah we want to address the social but not without a, a, a visual aesthetical language i mean it's a bit like a tesla car right i mean yeah you could pull away from uh, the design aesthetics of a car and like just focus on the electric <laughs> making the electric technology work and and all of that but as soon as you say there is social aspects, like one of them is indeed like people need to visually recognize and attach a kind of image to uh, housing. I mean, uh, so you, why not this? Like, why does it, regardless whether, uh, I don't think it can be an aesthetic free study. Like, and uh, we choose to attach catenaries and, and as, and rule descriptive geometry as a a priori like because that's the language we are most researched in and we know the production costs of making those things and we know uh, there we have rehearsed the the physical side uh, so when we now address the social side like we are using a language which we already rehearsed mm -hmm. Uh, because re one way or the other, you need a language to <laughs> attach to uh, these social um, studies. Let's say you, it, it cannot happen in vacuum. Uh, so there has to be an aesthetic attached. Uh, there has to be a language attached to uh, ordering of social processes. And um, yeah, so in that sense, yeah, it is a priori. Uh, but like we, it's propositional. Like I mean, apart from saying it's expensive, like if people say there is no real fit, because expense is like is just you know you can always see that like the next set of houses will become cheaper. Like so, expense in 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 many ways is is a very loaded value <laughs> mm -hmm. judgment because like what is expensive today can become progressively cheaper. And but um 
same way like why did why did people stop building like these kind of brick buildings and start doing um, reinforced concrete not because reinforced concrete was immediately cheaper you know the maison domino wasn't immediately cheaper it became cheaper over time and uh, but but it, it clearly proposed a, a new aesthetic vision and a, a new lifestyle positioning of that architecture, mm -hmm. uh, which I think, yeah, is a fundamental requirement for all architecture, like that you have to propose a new aesthetic, uh, a new image, otherwise, you know, like, uh, why, you know, I, we believe that people are less likely to be interested right um, I wonder if we could talk a little more about that image mm -hmm. um, I've heard words or terms used like fields mm -hmm. um, field space smooth mm -hmm. space mm -hmm. swarm formations yeah um, and I think that I agree with you there is a kind of burgeoning uh, fascination around new forms mm -hmm. uh, that speak to uh, new ways of living and new ways of working. Mm -hmm. um, for example, looking at uh, the new Google campus in California yep. by Heather Wick and yep. uh, Big. Mm -hmm. um, there's a kind of ambiguity around where one particular zone ends and the other begins. Yep. Um, there's a kind of unreal tensile canopy <laughs> yeah. over a very vaguely defined cluster of spaces yeah and and so I mean I guess I, I know what you're saying in a way mm -hmm. that there is a desire to further refine that mm -hmm. new spatial expression mm -hmm. um, but something I find challenging is that still these forms um, are strongly associated with luxury and yeah. um, and status yeah and I mean, if, if we just look at the work, a lot of the work that comes out of this practice in particular, it's for a, for a very elite, mm -hmm. small group of people. Yeah. And they become commodities in their own right. They elevate the status of the person who owns Sure. And so, how is it important to, to separate that aesthetic from that cultural association? Yeah, we don't see that as a problem because uh it, because it's not like a mono expression like that's that's where we think like our language is ours and like this kind of com computationally based languages of, of geometry and, and and design and are can occupy much broader spectrum whilst remaining within the same underlying technologies and the same underlying processes like uh, by varying certain parameters, like it, it, you get, you can occupy very different kind of connotative uh, or associative space, right? Like to to say, okay, this kind of thing looks more luxurious, and this looks slightly less luxurious, and this looks more social, and that. like because there is that extreme pliability, like which is it's not binary, it's not like. It it's either looks uh, austere or it looks uh, luxurious. It not it can occupy the full spectrum in between, and that's where we see it not as a problem because 
um, and many times like we like the same technologies that we have applied to for example uh, the design of the gallery for mathematics it's like it's the same thing similar shapes and techniques we use to design uh, the school for um, uh, you know refugee children or like for stage design or like you know so yeah there's like a full flexibility and adaptability to to um, connotations and things like so yeah so we don't see that as a, a problem actually we see that as a plus for <laughs> that you can occupy the full spectrum there's just a few more topics I want to cover mm -hmm. um, I'm curious about how personal research interests mm -hmm. uh, of yours get brought back into the practice yeah. at ZHA and how much steer you have um, in terms of influencing um, the direction you know, a certain project would take in the office. One of the really understated aspects of um, Zaha as, uh, as a person and also as a practice and pa uh, Patrick also um, is, is the amount of risk they take with young people, you know, like uh, so the opportunity I was given, um, I mean, though it is unique, I think, uh, but in, uh, the, like the maxi is is the end result of a group of people joining when they were maybe 25, 26, and building their supplier chain, building their aesthetic language, and 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 through little projects and and so on and so forth, ultimately manifesting in in the maxi. And likewise, uh, Baku, when, you, yeah. when you talk about the maxi, you're talking about the museum in, in Rome, is it right? The museum in Rome, yeah, uh, and yeah. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So that museum in Rome is, it took 10 years, uh, I mean, partially for economical reasons, but also, you know, like the the team that built it, like, also grew in, in confidence and uh, by doing several other experiments and competitions and so on and so forth. Like, likewise, the team that delivered ultimately the, the um, the cultural center in Baku uh, was similar. They grew in the office through a series of competitions and developing their language. And, and um, um, so, and I think like similarly, we aspire to as a group to have our own <laughs> uh, physical, physically built, manifested um, body of work like that. Uh, so that's one way that like we think uh, we steer the output. Uh, and yeah. by we as a group you're referring to the code. Yeah, 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 uh, yeah, yeah, computation and design group. Uh, and and then also with me personally, like uh, because Patrick has been very instrumental, like because I affiliate a lot with his kind of um, kind of uh, em emotion-free, rational ways of dissecting things, <laughs> um, and 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 also his tradition of analytical philosophy, and um, so in that sense, he's been very influential, and um, and 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 he's been very supportive of the group. And um, for example, he. Um, open. Uh, he's very clear that we we don't necessarily need to make profit. For example, like that's I think a very rare <laughs> uh, cushion and a buffer. Um, uh, and so our mandate is indeed to create novel tectonics, um, which I think 
for a research group is very um, unusual. Like, like usually a computational research group is required to uh, automate processes and, and I mean not to say we don't do that, we do do that like but we don't actually talk about that because that's a less interesting aspect, I think. Yeah. The way you're describing the kind of opportunities the practice has given you yeah. makes it sound like um, this place can function as a kind of incubator. Absolutely. Yeah. And I, I'm thinking of some of your colleagues who start who started here, yeah, but then left, yeah, to establish themselves independently, yeah. Um, and in particular, there's this group called AI Build by yeah. Dagen Kam, yeah, and then Automata by. Um, it's led by Mustafa El Said. Yeah, and I'm sure there's a handful of others as well. Yeah, um, who've kind of branched out and started companies that are in some way affiliated with uh, or tied to computational design. Yeah, and automation. Yeah, and so I'm curious what you would do mm -hmm. if you were to branch out as well. Yeah. I mean, it's an interesting question, uh, period also, I, th I think that um, uh, talking to Mustafa recently he was saying that like, you know, they're, they're in the startup venture capital world, there suddenly seems to be interest in um, uh, found, uh, founders who are architects. Uh, and Mustafa is one, uh, but like I also know from ETH and other places there, uh, people with the architectural background are somehow being sussed uh, or actively sought <laughs> to because they seem to uh, have the necessary let's say technical um, capabilities like if you're computationally based like I mean most startup worlds require that you understand the world of coding and uh, regardless of what you're doing um, so that aspect is covered but also I think the the kind of multifaceted educational system for of an architect uh, and the ability to negotiate friction and, and also the, the kind of soft skills of um, interpersonal relationships and, and the ideas of presentation and like you know clarifying your ideas through uh, dialogue all of these are naturally part of the architectural education uh, which seem very well adjusted to the new world of uh, startups and venture capital and like where um, where you you always have to straddle many things you know like it, there's no clear uh, nine to five uh, position that you can occupy and be a successful entrepreneur like so in that sense um, to me yeah it's very interesting and like uh, um, I think also uh, good demonstrator of like the value of architectural education and computational design and computational design thinking um, that like architects can branch out and do other things but now I think like the, the startup world is like less of an interest uh, like I would like to <laughs> be part of an incubation process of other startups um, because I, I think what we are most capable of, or my own skills, is 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 more uh, best adapted to straddling um, the conceptual and the theoretical and the philosophical, let's say, with with the practical. And um, uh, so, in that sense, like, uh, yeah, I would hope that like Zaha 
uh, sees like in the near future, um, like uh, UN Studio or Thornton Tomasetti, that like they become the incubators of uh, architectural startups. Like, I mean, um, which is different from technology startups of Mustafa or AI build. Like uh, those. That's a good thing, uh, but I think they can also be architecture-specific startups, uh, which uh, which our experience uh, can help incubate. I think, like not only ours as a group, but also Patrick as a and and our CEO uh, who used to be a CEO of Fosters. Uh, Patrick as a both a philosopher and also a practical. Um, I mean, he 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 was instrumental, apart from Zaha, to in in transforming the startup of Zaha into a 400-person company and so on. And so I think transferring that experience and uh, making more architecturally successful startups like would be what I would, if I were to kind of branch out like and leave the office. That's what I would hope to st still do like in relation uh, in relation to the office like because I I do think it's one of the really unique places um, to incubate architectural startups in, in, in the computational sense because I, I don't I don't see many other companies able to do that I know that we have to end soon I just like I, I don't know I feel like there's one there's something else that I haven't been able to quite articulate mm -hmm. but I feel like it's quite exciting about where the practice is at right now yeah because um, it feels like it's it's obviously in a state of transition mm -hmm. um, but not only in terms of leadership yeah but in terms of its design agenda yeah um, and it sounds like it's becoming a practice that is as concerned with um, information yeah. And analyzing information yeah. as it is with uh, the production of novel forms. Yeah. And so I guess how do you, if you were to forecast the direction of the practice, yeah. um, do these two things begin to run in parallel? Or is there a kind of tipping point where information takes hold? Well, I mean, it, the way Patrick positions is that like architecture is information <laughs> that like people browse and like are, are able to navigate and understand what the room is for and uh, what how they should behave or uh, so on and so forth. So in that sense, uh, um, in, in Patrick's world, all is information and architecture is information too. <laughs> and uh, and we are in the business of organizing that information in an easy to digest way. <laughs> and um, so. Um, yeah, and how far we can oper operationalize th that statement <laughs> is is um, uh, is still up for question. But I think in, that would be our kind of more focused attention is to, is to address new architectural tasks in greater and greater detail. And so information is bi-directional, like so we need information about society and then architecture tries to make use of that and like help people understand complex society and the complex information systems mm. in, 
in, in whatever capacity architecture can communicate that, right? I mean, Roger, thanks so much. No, thanks a lot, Matt. You've been listening to Scaffold. The show is produced by me, Matthew Blunderfield, and the theme music is composed and performed by Andrew Rayworth of the band Stanley Park. Additional music this week is by Fortet. Subscribe to Scaffold on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts, and follow the show on Twitter and Instagram at scaffold underscore podcast. Thank you to Shajay Bhushan, and thanks to you for listening. I'll see you again next month. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.